0: Hey, everyone, it's Reed. You're hearing an encore episode of my interview with Aleksandra Wisniewska. She was, at the time of our interview, a democracy activist in Poland. As you're now hearing this, she is a newly sworn in member of the Polish parliament. She is the kind of voice that Poland needs, that worldwide democracy needs, and I hope you enjoy this encore conversation with her as much as I did. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project, I'm your host, Ray Galen. Today, I'm joined by political scientist and humanitarian expert, Alexandra K. Viznuska. Alexandra recently completed a one-year mission in Ukraine with the International Humanitarian Organization, Intersos, where she served as the head of mission. In addition to her work in Ukraine, she's also performed work in a number of countries including Syria, Yemen, France, and Poland. She is a winner of the Green Hero Award of the UN Global Compact Network Poland and the Green Festival Foundation for Steadfastness and Actions for Human Rights and Climate, the Karski 2020 Award for Civil Courage, and the Forbes Polska 25 Under 25 Award in the Social Activity category. Alexandra is a graduate of Oxford University and the London School of Economics and Political Science and has recently returned from a trip to Ukraine. Today she's coming to us from Warsaw, Poland. Alexandra, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Reed. Thank you for having me.
0: So you are Polish, right? You've spent a lot of time in places away from home doing humanitarian kind of work. So you go from Oxford LSE, as they call it, London School of Economics. So tell us how you got your start, how you made it from Poland to London, and then how you embarked upon really a life of service to others in some pretty tough places.
1: So I'm half Polish, half Thai. So my mother's Thai, my father's Polish. I was born in Poland there. And I have left Poland for the first time when I was about 17 years old on a scholarship from the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I went to study in one of the United World Colleges. It's a network of schools around the world that is sort of committed to raising youth in a spirit of service, really. I lived for two years in Italy, and then I've started studying uh, at the LSE in London. I did politics and philosophy degree. It was before my Oxford degree. And my last, during my last year of my undergraduate studies, I had volunteered to work in the Greek islands on the island of Lesbos during the peak of the refugee crisis. So what had happened is that at that time, my home government, Polish government, has been boycotting any sort of EU quota of the allocation of Syrian refugees, including children. And I had a, a bit of a free time left during my Christmas break. So I showed up on the, um, on the shore On the island of Lesbos, which was experiencing an enormous amount of people attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea between Turkey and Greece every single night. And a lot of people had been drowning. And I've showed up on the shore and thinking that, you know, I might maybe assist a little in running the camps or just be of some symbolic help, really. And I also, as a European and as a Pole, you know, I felt quite ashamed of my home government. And I felt like I had civic duty just to do something, you know, and during my first night on the shore, I have encountered such shocking circumstances of, you know, people dying, I mean, senseless deaths on the sea. And it has changed my vision on on all my life plans.
0: So you're in London, you're going to school, you're going to Oxford, you go here, what was your plan before you left for Greece?
1: So I thought that maybe I'll do a bit of a, you know, political science and maybe I'll do lobbying a bit. And I think at that stage, you know, I very much thought that it is the primarily the institutions, you know, that have the primary responsibility and the governments, of course, for um, what's happening in the world, especially in the places where the world map is bleeding. And then, you know, very soon I have discovered that, in fact, you know, you have one of the most striking humanitarian crises happening on the shores of Europe, you know, obviously nothing comparing to Yemen or comparing to the countries that are neighboring to Syria etc but still people that you know have left their home countries that have are fleeing violence fleeing political violence and that end up drowning and I wanted to really understand why and what's happening and during my very first night serving on the shore we have managed to secure about 3 4 boats filled with you know about 50 people each but approximately 17 people drowned by the turkish shore including many children that night while the EU has been trying to pass something called EU Facilitation Directive, which was a policy that attempted to crack on any sort of smuggling, and they put under threat of arrest all the volunteers working on the shore. So anybody that was trying to take the drowning people out of the water, as the international maritime law actually tells you to, right? Anybody that would try to help people with hypothermia or feed them would be liable to prosecution.
0: Sort of being punished for being good Samaritans.
1: Yes, correct. And a joke emerged, you know, like, how can you tell if somebody is working for the UN, you know, well, they never get their shoes wet, you know. And uh, essentially, we've been pulling out people from the water and the UN was only transporting them to the camps. And it was so striking to me. And the EU has started putting put NATO warships on the water at some point, trying to return the boats back to Turkey. But what has happened is that a lot more people died at first trying to choose, you know, much harder routes and during much more dangerous storms and it seemed a bit Orwellian, you know, to me at that stage. Since
0: 2014, about 10 years ago now, I'm going to ask you a historical question, which might be unfair. Between 2014 and today, between Syria and North Africa and now Ukraine, has Europe experienced a mass migration like that in recent memory?
1: What Europe is currently experiencing, right? I mean, it's an intense migration crisis, but I think that the problem that we're facing is a lack of the vision of the politicians on how do we form a migration policy. And I think, you know, the current understanding of who a refugee is and who a migrant is, is resting actually on the world order after the Second World War, and it's not relevant anymore. And I think one thing which we fail to recognize is that, you know, why people cross through the sea to reach Europe. I mean, basically, out of all the refugees globally, refugees and migrants globally being on different migration routes in the camps, only 1% that applies for asylum in Europe actually receives it. So what happens is that on one hand, we lament the existence of the human smugglers. On the other hand, we make it the only route of actually applying for asylum in Europe. You know, I've seen children that were in the camps in France, for example, trying to jump on lorries, you know, every single night to try to reach the UK where they had some sort of family members. Seven-year-old, eight years old, mostly boys from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Iran, and they would cut out or they would burn their fingertips, you know, because they were afraid that because of the Dublin Treaty and the Dublin Regulation that requires you to leave your fingerprints in the first European country that you reach, that being Greece mostly or Italy, that you can apply for asylum only there. But then the average time that you spend in the camps is five years. So. The children that are desperate, for example, unaccompanied minors that are desperate to reach safety, you know, in different countries, are trapped in this limbo in the system where, I mean, really trying to evade the law and becoming victims of human smugglers, victims of sexual exploitation, victims of human trafficking becomes extremely common. And I think we fail to realize the situation and the tragedies and the aspirations of people that are caught, of people in places of conflict. And we have not found yet a system that can be based on international cooperation and that can be an equilibrium between thinking of strategies and being rational and thinking of the interests of the state, but on the other hand, of also of remaining deeply humane and empathetic and of understanding where do these people actually flee from.
0: So, Alexandra, you said one thing to me that struck, and as I said, I was in a meeting about four years ago where someone, we were talking about the American political system and someone said, well, you know, in the post-war era, and I said, man, I And he said, yeah, I said, you know, that was 80 years ago, right? Not eight years, not 18 years, 80 years ago. And so how is it that we can expect either here in the United States politically or really anywhere that as fast as everything has moved, more has happened in humanity between 1945 and 2023 than happened in the previous 150,000 years? So now, like, oh, we think something that a bunch of old guys in 1945 came up with and, you know, some castle, like, is now still going to be adequate. So how do you, as someone who is a young, well-informed and, you know, someone dedicated to service, how do you see that sort of rustiness? How do we overcome that? Because one thing you're also talking about is a basic lack of leadership. These are really significant problems You can't have seven-year-olds living in a camp in France for five years. That is a post-World War II thing, right? A displaced persons camp. Now, Ukraine is one thing, right? You've got people fleeing a war, but maybe all these folks are fleeing a war. But the answer can't be the worst possible outcome for somebody who's been fleeing their lives, which is a camp. And why is it that the camp always seems to be, and this may be an unfair question, why is the camp always seem to be the dumping ground, for lack of a better way to say it? For these people who are literally fleeing for their lives.
1: So at that time, when I was sort of at the peak of the refugee crisis, at the time I was 21, and seeing what you're basically what you're describing is that how inadequate our best policy-making tools are, and how what lack of vision are we facing, even at the best of our institutions. My, you know, my, my sort of personal attempt to do, the closer I got to the heart of war over the years, the more questions often I had than answers. The more paradoxes, you know, I haven't encountered, but it was really to try to go into the unknown, to try to use the next, what turn out to be the next eight years of my life, of trying to understand best as I can empirically and try to commit all my striving, all my tools, all my intellect, all my physical power that I can to try to empirically understand what pushes a mother to put a child in a boat that I would never, if I had my own child, I would never put myself, you know, what is that type of desperation? And then in order to empirically understand it as much as I can, not only from books, internet, human rights conferences, but actually empirically in the place of crisis. And then to one day, right, in the hope of contributing my work to prevent it. So this has led me right over the years and later to work on after Greece and France, then to work with the UN shortly in Turkey and Jordan, Syria crisis, then to work in Iraq for a while during the battle for Mosul run a mission in Yemen for two years and now we'll run a mission in Ukraine for a year. And I think what you're saying, especially about it comes, is interesting because when we think of the refugee crisis, we think of the refugee camps and indeed what happens is that I think in the global refugee system, an average refugee has three choices. And I think it's critical that so we understand what these are, if we are to talk about the migration policy and the vision for migration policy. So let's say basing it on example of the family that actually had a culture in Iraq in 2017, there was a battle for retaking Mosul, one of the biggest Iraqi cities from ISIS. You know, obviously the self proclaimed caliphate, the uh, US led coalition, and the Iraqi military had called it a great victory after retaking the city from ISIS, or as they called it, Daesh, from, that's from Arabic, standing from I and S. It also means a cockroach. So they have retook the city and they called it, you know, a great victory. And meanwhile, I was working at the UN on the Syria crisis in Jordan. I've managed to cross into Iraq. Um, first, into Iraq, Kurdistan in the north, and then I have heard of you know what has been happening in the camps and in Mosul to the civilian population that has been left there. So what happened is that you had the Iraqi army entering the city, you had the coalition bombing the city from the above. There are different estimates of how many people died from the bombing, and some human rights organizations are saying that up to forty thousand people died in the battle from Mosul alone, and. A lot of men and boys, so 14 years and above, had been disappeared, you know, or have been murdered or have been taken away. All had been accused of cooperating with the Islamic State to some extent. And before Mosul has been taken over by the Islamic State, by ISIS, it has actually been oppressed by a number of years by the Iraqi government. So, you know, for many citizens that were born in Mosul, for them, okay, the, the flag has changed, you know, but they hoped to continue their lives where they were born. And then after the fall of Mosul, lots of people fled to the camps in the south of Mosul. And I I worked for an organization, for an Iraqi organization. I knew that the UN is not going to ever allow me to cross into the camps because of their security regulations. So I essentially started working with the people from Mosul that were working on evacuating civilians from Mosul and that were running IUM funded, so funded by International Organization for Migration, one of the biggest camps south from Mosul for about 70,000 people. And... We had multiple families that after the fall of Mosul, after retaking of the city, could not return back to their homes, even though, you know, the Iraqi state and the U.S., you know, and and Poland included, you know, had declared a huge victory. So what had happened is that a number of citizens from Mosul were accused or stigmatized as being associated with the insurgency, right?
0: Collaborators.
1: Correct. But there was no precise definition of who actually the collaborator is. So you had... Thousands of people trapped in a desert, especially mothers that became female-headed households with their children, children that were born during the time of the caliphate. So the children that were born between 2014-2017 were up to like sort of four years old, and they were stateless. They had no documents of their own. They were not considered Iraqi, not considered European. If they were European, they were stateless. They couldn't even attend UNICEF school in the camp. And so I looked at it, you know, and I was struck by what is happening. And I wrote my Oxford thesis on failure of counterinsurgency efforts, and in that basically, if we do nothing with the children that cannot go to school, that cannot return back to their homes in Mosul, that are being called ISIS children, you know, that are being stigmatized and violated, and that experience lots of physical and mental abuse from other residents of the camps or from the Iraqi militia, etc., then we can expect another insurgency 10 years' time, essentially.
0: Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odu. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O.com/lincoln. O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Modern management made simple. For so many people, I mean, we've seen this and we've seen it throughout history, but when we think about the great military battles, victory is always going to be in the eye of the beholder. That you think of mostly men, guns, tanks, whatever it is, they have won this great victory. They have, quote, liberated a city. And then they move on or they dissipate or whatever, but much like a hurricane, this enormous amount of violence comes through and the wreckage and the death and destruction remains. And so what you're saying here is that you know it's one thing for counterinsurgency to work to kill the insurgents, right? For the United States, winning a military battle, I don't want to say it's easy, nothing's easy, but it is expected. We saw this with Iraq, which is the United States military was going to defeat the Iraqi military. That was going to happen. But it's that vacuum, Alexandra, that is created that unless someone has a plan to fill it with, to your point, humanitarian aid or some plan to say, okay, how are we going to return or create some level of normalcy? Then this chaos is not days, weeks, months, but years. And to your point, now you have kids who they belong to one mom, but they belong to no one else. They belong to no country. They belong to no city. They belong to no community. And what are you supposed to do with them? And so, to your point, it's, you know, Iraq, probably not a particularly stable place anyway, right? Syria is a disaster. All these places, too, suffer from tyrannical governments, authoritarian governments, probably non-existent social services. In some place like Yemen, you have a civil war, proxy war between two other states. And so, yeah, that's the part of it, which is it's one thing to win a military victory, but winning the peace has always been much, much harder.
1: Correct and. This creates a situation where, of course, after you know huge declared celebrations and victories, you know I remember these fireworks in Erbil, you know in northern Iraq, you know all over after the after the battle from Mosul and a lot of celebratory fire, etc. And meanwhile, I mean the city was obviously was a cemetery, absolutely destroyed. And you know when you look at the cities that have been bombed, when you look at the cities that have been destroyed, and we can see what the war does to cities. I mean, if we imagine what it does to the people that survive, and Let's say that you know, you're this, one of these ISIS wives, you know, so-called, trapped in the desert of Mosul. Your one choice is to stay in the camp. In the camp, you have humanitarian assistance, limited, but you have some access to water, some access to medical aid, if you might require to do so through humanitarian organizations working in camps, but you have very limited dignity, very limited ownership and autonomy over your faith. You have limited opportunities, no opportunities to work, to be independent. And the average time of remaining income is basically five years. So then you can have another option, which is to flee to, let's say, a neighboring state, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon. So most of the countries that absorb the refugees from Syria and Iraq. And then you are in an urban area. You are not permitted to work legally. So you work illegally. You've lost the access to aid. So if you've lost the access to humanitarian assistance and you're mostly marginalized for years. So essentially, there is a chance of seeking asylum in Europe, let's say, but that chance is so small that it's basically non-existent.
0: So this is a life in the shadows for hundreds of thousands, millions? I mean, what's the number? If you had to estimate, how many of these stateless folks living in the shadows do you think there are in the areas that you're familiar with?
1: So, I mean, looking at the amount of people that are internally displaced, I mean, obviously, there is a number of refugees that we know of, and then there is the number of internally displaced people within the countries, which is multiple times the amount of the people that are displaced globally. And I mean, just looking at, for example, the example of states, currently Ukraine. This so is the most visible conflict. Within the state of Ukraine, you have currently 18 million people requiring humanitarian assistance to survive, out of which, I think, 5 million people are internally displaced, and we have 6 million refugees abroad. and then. Ukraine has been receiving, obviously, a tremendous amount of aid comparing to other countries, such as Yemen. You know, just right before Ukraine, I served in Yemen. So I went from one of the most forgotten, ignored crises into the most media attention, and, and I think rightfully so, because it creates also political shockwaves that are going to destabilize, you know, Poland, Europe, the rest of the world, obviously. A far more significant political struggle in many ways than the internal or proxy war in Yemen, as, as tragic it is, might politically be for the global order. So I mean the amounts are huge, and I think on one hand the understanding is limited, but also I think the easiest thing to do, you know, when you when you see suffering, right, is to turn away from it. And I think what our educational systems are failing a bit to do is to encouraging us to turn towards it, you know, instead of turning away. And I think if we are to be able to raise to the challenge of globalization. People on the move, climate crisis that will cause even more people to move, but also the military capabilities and also the technological warfare, cyber warfare, and the challenges to security that makes, for example, today for a number of unstable, insane individuals, they can produce a chemical bomb, for example, in the garage, you know, or they can attack another state, you know.
0: And deliver it via a drone if they wanted to.
1: Exactly. Which was not the case 30 years ago, you know. So, I think that all of us across the world, in the US, in Poland, which is currently the eastern flank of NATO, of course, have to work tirelessly on ensuring that our best institutions, NATO, the EU, but the UN, you know, are being sort of systematically improved. And I've worked for the UN um, for, I mean, for one year, but I did. And during that time, I remember, you know, seeing the huge shortcomings of the UN, you know, the lack of that military force that can be deployed, you know, the fact that in many crises in the world like Srebrenica in former Yugoslavia during the murder of the Muslim Bosniaks by the Serbs or in Rwanda after the genocide the UN basically stood aside and watched, right? I think despite that, I also look at the UN Charter, you know, and that attempt of a group of people to create one global assembly of the nations where things can be debated instead of immediately going to war where we are trying to save humanity from the scourge of war, you know, I think this purpose is so noble. And I think we all must work tirelessly to preserve it. And I'm also an idealist, you know, so I think that, you know, uh, if I may interrupt,
0: let me ask you that, because that was going to be my next question, which is when you even at still a relatively young age, a very young age, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. And what I'm hearing is that you've had an incredible education. You're talking about understanding the empirical Evidence, understanding empirically why these things are happening, but you have managed to maintain both a realism about the world writ large, a realism about the institutions that are at work, whether or not it's the EU or the UN or whatever it is. So, how do you maintain that balance and maintain an idealism in the face of some horrific things that you've seen? Because to me, that is the true. Strength and the true talent is knowing all these things, being able to hold rational thoughts in your head without losing that humanity, right? Because it's very easy to say there are five thousand people who come every day. Those five thousand go here, they go there, they'll stay this long, and you know, at some point, they won't be our problem, or we'll ship them back to where they come. Right? A very sort of systematized, almost logistical nature of a humanitarian crisis. But then there's the other part, which says, okay. What are the root causes of this and how do we stop them? But again, Alexandra, the stuff that you're talking about, the stuff that you've seen and that you are trying to help must be in some days crushing. So how do you get up every morning and say, I'm going to do it again?
1: I truly believe that from certain experiences of the things that I had seen, you know, many years ago at sea, they carry responsibility. I think that if we witness certain things around us and there are many and they can be In our hometowns, they can be in our home states. they don't have to be abroad, they don't have to be on the front lines. But I think we owe this to the world to try to match our skill set with the need around us. And I think we're all needed. And I think when I encounter younger people than me, I have younger siblings. I try to tell them constantly that you are needed and your inaction in the world will have consequences essentially. And it's not only for your own sake. That you ought to try to strive to achieve the best education as you can, the best tools of impact that you can build biggest teams, you know, find the biggest financial resources to make the world a better place, but also because the failure to act currently can have disastrous consequences given the amount of populism that we can see, given the amount of autocrats in power, given the amount of violation of the rules of the jungle, of the international humanitarian law, of the laws of war that we can see currently in the world with the Russia-Ukraine war, or really Russia-the-West war, right? That we can see you know, in the American Republican Party with Trump, that we can see in Poland with the current government, you know? So for me, it's just an attempt to take responsibility. But it is very true that many times I had tremendous amount of doubts, and uh, there were days where I felt extremely powerless because for every single person that we've managed to save, the teams that I had the great privilege to lead in Yemen or in Iraq or in different countries, for every single person that we served, there were so many others that we couldn't. And it always felt like a drop in the ocean. And I think that two things were giving me hope in these situations. First was the sheer resilience and the sheer act of courage amongst the people that I had the privilege to serve. So for example, you know, now looking at Ukraine, right? I've served in many places and I've never seen a nation like this. I mean, they are fighting with, obviously with our tools, with our weapons, but with their own blood and with every single Russian missile falling on a school, falling on a civilian infrastructure, you know? I mean, obviously the Russian logic is to try to, you know, the scorch earth, try to bring the nation down that they couldn't themselves take over. But with every single missile falling on a civilian infrastructure, you can only see that the morale of the country are rising, you know?
0: And let me ask you that, because I remember at the beginning of the invasion, there was video of women sitting in a bomb shelter or maybe in a train state, you know, whatever it was, a tunnel. It was clearly a shelter for something. And they're making Molotov cocktails, right? They're building Molotov cocktails, bottles, you know, the fuel and the thing and they're singing. I'm like, this is going to be a tough group of people to beat because they're whistling while they work at making sure they've got enough Molotov cocktails to give to the guys and gals that have to go out to the front lines. But talk to us a little bit because of the things you're talking about, for us here in America, Ukraine is the one that is top of mind, probably because it's Europe, probably because it's Russia. So tell us, I think when we talked Earlier in the week, you said you'd just come back from Bakhmut. So give our listeners some sense of how you see it. You mentioned the resolve of the Ukrainian people, which I think is undeniable. And much like your own home of Poland, you all have lived at the crossroads, uh, what Tim Snyder in our country calls the Bloodlands, right? Which, whether they're from the West, whether or not from the East, you all have been in the midst of this for centuries. So give us your vision of what's happening in Ukraine today. There's the military piece, but also with the people.
1: Correct. So what is currently happening in Ukraine is that, let's start from a humanitarian perspective, then we can move on to perhaps a more military or security political view. So from a humanitarian perspective, we have a country that is currently, I mean, today is the 525th day of the war. It's the 2nd of August. And so we are sort of over one year into an extremely brutal conflict, a slaughter that I myself have never seen looking at the military capabilities involved because essentially since October last year, so since October, 2022, Russia has started to conduct mass missile strike and they have the capacity approximately to conduct such a mass well-planned missile strike every two weeks, but there are multiple air raid alerts every single day and they're indiscriminately bombing right now, civilian infrastructure, but particularly focusing on any sort of energy sources It was an extremely tough winter in Kiev where a lot of people just, especially on the eastern border, froze to death, where temperatures, you know, would fall some to minus 15 degrees on the Russian-Ukraine border, where me and my humanitarian teams and other organizations were trying to set up heating points for people that would search for firewood, for example, in the forest, and they would run into mines. So Russia was trying to, you know, to turn this winter into an extremely deadly one by bombing the, any sort of energy infrastructure, by bombing water systems. So every two weeks, you would experience a mass strike all over the country from ballistic missiles that would be fired from either from the Black Sea or from Belarus or from the Russian Federation. And the flight of a missile to Kharkiv, for example, which is 32 kilometers from Russian border takes only a couple of dozens of seconds, meaning that first you hear the impact and then there is the air raid alert, you know? So in many situations, you would have people that would not be able even to run down.
0: Because the missile's traveling faster than the speed of sound, so the sound is behind the missile.
1: Correct. And they use the hypersonic missiles, so-called Kinjal missiles, which travel at 4,000 kilometers per hour speed. And they are very imprecise. This is all the equipment. And essentially they are one of the missiles on the 14th of January. I remember I was back in Kyiv, where there's essentially the heart of the humanitarian diplomacy. While all my senior management team, I had sent them out to Dnipro and Dnipro is close to Kharkiv, to Donetsk, to Zaporizhia, so they could access the Eastern frontline. One of the hypersonic missile had struck very close to our office. And, um, I remember traveling to Dnipro to the East, like two days later and first ensuring that the team is okay, of course, and then going to the place of the impact size and it was this huge post-Soviet building that got struck with the missile. And 236 apartments have collapsed. It looked as if, you know, some sort of beast would have like devoured like a part of the building. And you had children walking around and there were multiple people that were pronounced as missing. But obviously what happened is that they were trapped under the rubble. And the authorities were not able to retrieve them. And I remember going there. And even though, despite the fact that I was, because of the sort of consecutive years of trying my best to work in the sector and, and reaching the positions of the heads of mission. And despite the fact that I had a team of 260 and we had a substantial budget, we had eight bases across the country, all that I could do when a missile like that struck was to just go and to light a candle. I had this little candle that I had in Kyiv that I would light in my office when I had no electricity and I took it all the way to Dnipro with me. To that place of impact then all I could do is to sit by the building with you know tears flowing down my face and really feeling extremely powerless you know and I feel like you know humanitarian aid very often is being used by states as a substitute of any meaningful foreign policy interventions
0: so because they'd rather pay for something than do something
1: of course yes and you see states like Hungary for example right now that you know, are essentially calling themselves neutral in the crisis, even though they're neighboring states to Ukraine, and they're, you know, they're pumping money into the humanitarian aid institutions, and meanwhile doing very little or actually continuing trade negotiations with Russia, and to the, obviously to the huge grievance of the Ukrainians. And I think, you know, for many years now, I've been putting a bandaid on a wound that keeps getting shot. You know, one of the books about the paradoxes of the humanitarian aid, Linda Polman writes that The book is called Crisis Caravan, and she writes how some humanitarian aid workers back in Rwanda used to say that attempting to deliver humanitarian programming is a bit like giving sandwiches at the gates of Auschwitz. And obviously, it's an extremely brutal comparison. And due to the the history of my own country, I don't think I would dare saying that myself. But looking at the slaughter, you know, now happening in Ukraine daily, I really think that it captures the raw... brutality, the carnage, you know, the scale of the carnage. And meanwhile, I see the support, the humanitarian support decreasing, you know, people being tired of the conflict and we must rise to the challenge. You know, the U S obviously is absolutely critical force here, you know, supporting states, you know, such as, you know, Poland currently here and supporting the Ukraine efforts, we really have to be ready for something that would be a long war, a long conflict. And also a very long period of rebuilding the state. One thing, you know, that I think this might not be transparent from far, but I see very vividly in Ukraine currently is that across the entire front line, you have people returning to the areas which were retaken by the Ukrainian forces or the Russians have been pushed back. And you can see this erosion of the societal net with the people returning being called, you know, you cowards, why have you left? And those that stay are being called collaborators. And why have you stayed, you know? And you have stabilizational filtration camps that are being established, both, you know, on the Russian border, taking people forcibly into Russia, but also by the Ukrainian side, you know, that have to filter any sort of collaborators, essentially. And you have the rhetoric, the narratives of the ethnic cleansing on both sides, and now at present. I mean, it's a war that will have an enormous impact for years on Europe. and. This, I think, creates a particular feeling of responsibility for states such as, I mean, of course for the U.S. with your upcoming elections, but also for us to ensure that we can be a shining light of leadership, of democracy, and of solidarity when the world calls for it so badly.
0: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. All right, so you said something earlier and you've mentioned a couple of these countries. I mean, there's obviously Russia, which is authoritarian. I'm not sure that it, you know, and I'm going to lean on your political science background here. I'm not sure that that country lies somewhere on a normal political spectrum, right? Because it's one man doing all these things. But you mentioned Hungary with Orban and, you know, he's turned away from democracy. We saw that in Italy, they have elected a, I don't want to say she's a fascist, but certainly further to the right than Italy's seen in many years. We thankfully just had the far right defeated in Spain in the Spanish elections. We saw Macron defeat Marine Le Pen. And, you know, we we now see what's going on in the Netherlands. A lot of that government there falling because of migrant policy. So let me ask you this, to bring your worlds together, do you think the rising populism and lurching to the right, the political right, is just simply based on mass migration and the refugee problem? Or do you think there's something else at work? Because we're seeing it here and we have issues on our southern border, but nothing like what Europe is experiencing, no matter what any of the wackos here say. So what's happening to whole, so many politicians and also so many European voters to the right, do you think?
1: So I think for sure the European mismanagement or global mismanagement of the migration crisis and the the narratives of xenophobia that emerged at the time, you know, for sure were one of the factors. I mean, you see states that have very misguided migration policies, I know, France, that are not dealing with the migration well, but on the same time, you have Canada that is dealing actually quite well, you know, and has like programs of reintegration of the families, program of ensuring, you know, that the demographics that actually enter the country are those that the the economy needs. I mean, so there are ways of managing the migration system that are better and those that are worse. So I think for sure that was a factor. For sure in Poland, there was a huge, extremely xenophobic narrative going on by our current populist, conservative and eurosceptic government. And uh, as you mentioned, you can see it also obviously rising sentiments in Hungary, in Italy with, with, with Maloney, with AFD, with and etc. of different parties in Europe. I think what has happened at least looking at, for example, the example of Poland, you know, which is a state that for many, many years has been a state that almost seemed like one of these perfect poster boys of the EU integration, you know. We had almost like a golden age of Polish economy after joining the EU. We've had sort of this liberal class growing and Poland increasingly opening ourselves more economically, but socially, ideologically to what I think we might call sort of Western liberal democracies. And then suddenly a crash, right? And when you right now currently look at, for example, the Freedom House index, Poland has never been as low as it currently is, you know, in its democratic history on the Freedom House Index. So we are eight years in a row of the rule of the current government. So they are law and justice ruling party. So it is a law and justice rule government. And what you can see is that their main voter base is that of the people that actually felt forgotten when Poland joined the EU. So those that their primary voter base is from the rural areas that had less access to opportunities, less access to education that are quite religious. So in Poland, you have a very close alliance between the author, the church and the throne and the politics. And you have these extremely populist policies, which essentially told people that by engineering two emotions, primarily engineering fear and engineering anger based on the external enemy, such as refugees or migrants, for example, instead of focusing on solutions, they were like, look, they are the enemy and we have to consolidate under the strong, almost authoritarian party leadership, you know, increasingly illiberal, that takes over the media, takes over the constitutional courts, you know, takes over the parliament, you know, increasingly so, in order to deal with the external enemy. And I think one thing, which is also quite symptomatic in the Polish populism that also you can see in, in different populists around the world is that it's based on some sort of myth. And the Polish populism currently has been the first government of the law and justice after 2005, has been based on a myth of so-called illustration policy. Illustration policy was a policy that was meant to purge the Polish political and public scene from anybody that collaborated previously with the communist regime. And many people, you know, were forced to sign some sort of paper. And the current myth is based on something else. The current myth is based on the myth of the entire liberal opposition, the entire sort of center and center right or center left. Um, opposition parties collaborating either with Germany, collaborating with the EU, you know, to essentially oppress the Polish nation. And in 2010, we had a tragic accident. So in 2010, a plane, you know, a Polish plane full of Polish dignitaries, full of Polish politicians, Polish president, his one wife, first lady, and the biggest generals of the Polish army, including those of the opposition.
0: There was this Sikorsky?
1: Kaczyński, Lech Kaczyński. Kaczyński, okay. So Lech Kaczyński and his wife, Maria Kaczyńska, had died a tragic death in a plane crash. So there was a Polish plane that flew to Russia to commemorate a massacre committed by the Soviet Union many years ago, and the plane crashed.
0: This was the Kachin Forest.
1: Correct. And 96 people died tragically. And obviously, Poland was mourning for a period of time, but the surviving brother of Lech Kaczyński, Jarosław Kaczyński, who is right now, he seems like a like an average member of the parliament, but in fact he's the kingmaker of the Polish government currently. He turned, you know, what has been happening into a myth of a conspiracy of the current opposition, Donald Tusk collaborating with the Germans and with the Russians to murder the president. And basically they had set up this rituals of a monthly marches through Warsaw to commemorate the massacre that they are unofficially calling a murder, they've launched a number of investigations that had never proven, you know, anything, but that are putting voters either in a state of implicit um, murder that has been committed. And now using a publicly state-funded media that the party has taken over. And a lot of people in Eastern Poland, in South Eastern Poland, have only access to one TV channel being that state-funded media. They have spread the myth, you know, and using also the institution of the church. And they have been manipulating the voters since then. And now we're eight years in, we have upcoming in October, uh, critical elections. Some calling it the most critical elections in Poland since 1989, where the opposition that currently is attempting to be united under the leadership of Donald Tusk, so the previous president of the European Council that have returned to Poland to try to unite the opposition. And I think stands a fair chance of actually forming a government. So we're facing these elections and it's an extremely critical moment for the Polish democracy, especially so because we're now the frontline nation, right? So whatever incompetence, stupidity that we might commit might have global repercussions on other states and the global security as well.
0: Well, look, I mean, so much of what you're talking about is echoed here in America you talk about the myth, it could be what we're dealing with as we speak, which is somehow that Donald Trump won the 2020 American election. Everyone knows he did. He knows he did. But now, you know, in, a, in a, the New York Times, which is, you know, obviously the paper of record in the United States says something like 70% of, you know, Republican voters believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, which means as you talk about the myth that somehow, Alexandra, you know, we live in an occupied country right? Joe Biden's not really the president, right? He's occupying the White House illegally. And then with our own conservative side here, right, it's not necessarily the Catholic church, but what we would call the evangelical church, you know, which is almost post-biblical, right? Which is whatever we say about the Bible is true and whatever Donald Trump says is okay. And, you know, these two things are totally okay to go together, even though, you know, Donald Trump wouldn't know the Bible from a hole in the ground. And so, It is interesting to see, and again, you are someone who has a background in in not only the front lines of this, but also the history of these things, is these myths, you know, even in a time of incredible availability of information, we should never forget that information doesn't equal knowledge and that these myths actually move faster now because of the roots that we have to communicate.
1: Yes. And this is something that, you know, myself, me, and the, group of my dear friends in Poland, you know, decided to attempt to combat a bit, to try to make our little contribution to what is happening here on, the, on this battleground for democracy. But such battlegrounds for democracy are happening in Hungary, in Turkey, in the US, you know, in Poland currently. And essentially, we have returned from many places from all around the world. I have returned from Ukraine as well, after 12 months serving Ukraine. Although I go back and forth, and last week I, I went to Bakhmut, as you mentioned, to try to deliver some assistance to the battalions fighting in Karmatorsk and Bakhmut. And essentially, we, as a group of friends, we had returned, really thinking that this is a critical moment. And unless everybody who holds the ideas of democracy, human rights, freedom, dear, and unless you know everybody will try to take responsibility for the little part of the world that we, we actually can impact work together over the next few months, then we might find ourselves in an extremely dark scenario, extremely dark, where we can not only be of the critical danger to the rest of Europe, but also, you know, when you, when you look at, for example, the Ukraine thinking of democracy. And Ukraine currently has to go through a number of reforms to be able to even dream, right, of joining the EU or NATO at some point. And they are doing it. They're, they're trying to accelerate, they're trying to fight corruption, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But one of the things that my Ukrainian colleagues kept telling me was that, you know what, Alexandra, it's not only the humanitarian and military aid that we need. When we think of democracy, we don't think of Paris or London or Rome, you know, we think of Warsaw, you know, a, a bit post-Soviet, a bit Eastern European world, you know, and that we can relate to, you know. And if you as Poland will try to defend your democratic institutions and your civic society, then that will already be something for us to aspire to. You know, we tried essentially for now, we are, we're putting at a, a get out the vote campaign with a group of my friends. And, we you know, we, we attempted to make it a bit different to the current political narratives that are dominating in Poland, which are mostly cynical or mostly focusing on uh, quite hostile or focusing on mostly criticizing the opponent rather than showing the positive things that we can aspire to. And we wanted to return to the language of values a bit, you know, but in a way that is not archaic but in a way that actually puts them in a quite modern context and that also honors the bravery and the courage of the generations that fought before us, you know, like those uh, Oleg Wałęsa's Solidarity Movement of the people that were celebrating bringing out the Berlin Wall, you know, in Europe. And also seeing that perhaps what we ought to do now as a generation, you know, as millennials and Gen Z, in order to really honor that act of courage of the people that fought for actual democracy, is to try to do everything we can to defend the scraps of democracy that we still have in Poland now.
0: Right. And, you know, as I like to say, and my listeners are probably sick of hearing me say, is that, you know, what you're trying to build is a coalition, right, as a pro-democracy coalition. And as I like to say, because we work with a whole bunch of people that might have been our political opponents 10 years ago, right? Which is in a coalition, Alexandra, you don't have to agree on everything. You just have to agree on one thing. And even with all of that, right, it can be very difficult. Everybody's like, but I really want to worry about this. Like, I get it. You can and should worry about that. But we got this bridge to cross. And if you can cross that bridge, then we can talk about that. But if we're stuck on this side of the river, like that never happens. That never, ever happens. And I think sometimes the impatience and the short-sighted nature of it or the But I don't want it to be this way can be frustrating to us because we're like, but look, you can see it. We can see it. Why can't you see it? And so then you have to stop and say, okay, it's not that they're bad people. It's that you and I spend all day, every day thinking about this stuff. So I don't need you to think about it all day, every day. I just need you to think about it enough. And I just need you to put aside whatever the petty differences are or even the policy differences are for this time. I'm not saying give them up forever. I'm not saying being a nihilist, right? We were trying to fight the nihilism. I'm not asking you to be a nihilist. I'm asking you to be focused. And as you know, not only in your time on the beaches, your time on the front lines, but also your time getting out the vote in Poland is we have the attention span of goldfish. And we have to just say, just, I just need you to hang with me for a little longer. Just hang with me for a little longer. Well, what are you going to promise me? I can't promise you anything but choice that you're going to have a a choice, you're going to have a voice, you're going to have an opportunity to decide how we as a country, we as a world live. Democracy doesn't mean you get everything you want. It means you have a voice in the argument. And I think a lot of times we lose that because it's like, well, I want what I want and I don't want to have to argue about it. That's not how it works. We can give you that. If that's what you want, there's a word for that. and We're headed that way. But listen, it doesn't work out for you. It doesn't work out for me. It works out for like 10 people. And the rest of us are out on the outside. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a rant.
1: This is extremely true. And I think what you're saying is that I see also some sort of bond in between, you know, the separate struggles that our countries are facing, you know. And I think that everybody that wants to preserve this world that is currently set on fire, you know, has to sort of work together and support each other. And really, I mean, for now, put aside the petty differences, because there's so much that is at stake you know and currently you know i can see that so many of people in poland my age you know people in europe my age feel so disenchanted with the current politics that they don't want to participate in the system that they say you know whatever is politics does not interest me they feel apathetic cynical disengaged you know and this is what you're doing essentially also the lincoln project of course and that i hugely admire is trying to make everybody a bit more informed a bit more engaged you know to try to really ensure that we're all aware that, you know, unless you're not at the table, you're at the menu, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean,
0: I like that. Basically, I like that a lot. I'm going to steal that.
1: No, please do. And um, yeah, and I think we have a responsibility. You know, each of us as citizens has a responsibility. It does not matter if we are 40 or 60 or 18, you know, we each have a, a role to play in our societies to ensure that democracy prevails.
0: Well, this has been incredible. And I want to thank you so much. I don't even know what time it is where you are, but it's much later than it is where I am. Tell me this,
1: where can
0: our listeners and our viewers find you and your work on social media, online? And, and Rob, let's make sure to put everything in the show notes so folks can find Alexandra.
1: Sure. So you're very much welcomed if you would be interested you know, to find me on Twitter under AK Vishnievska on Facebook and Instagram. Um, when I was in war zones for a long time, I've, I've never had Instagram, but now I've been running it for the past five weeks. I hope that I can keep it up. And also you can learn more about the Get Out Devout campaign, which we're putting out with my team, which is um, an incredible team that I have a privilege to lead of young, engaged citizens, you know, on a website, um, it's in Polish, but it's odważyszsie.pl, meaning will you have the courage PL that we're also very happy to share with the spot that we produced in English as well.
0: And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram. And now threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Best of luck and and bless you for all you've done. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.